I'd ask if everyone could turn in their Bibles today to Ephesians chapter 1. We spent last week on, in our service and second hour looking at the, the, the big list of the riches of God's grace to us in Christ. And we emphasized the part of the study we're making of the things that God has done for us, for which we're constantly grateful, the irrevocable things God has given us of the Holy Spirit. Um, there are different ways people have counted all the things that happen when you first trust in Christ, all the different things that God does for the believer, like sealing us into the day of redemption, which we're looking at today. Um, many things he did that you could never earn or deserve, they're God's grace. And that's really what we're talking about with grace. Grace isn't a transaction that, um, that if you do certain things, then you get a measure of response from God to, uh, to get a little more of this big package called, ultimately, eventually I get all the grace. That's not how it works. Grace is what God is free by his sovereign design to do for us because of what Jesus Christ alone did for us at the cross. This is a message, a study on the riches of grace for people who have been to Calvary and trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's a message that applies to us because we can look back on the cross and say, the New Testament tells us that these are the things that God has already done for us. We read about this in Romans 8, that God has given us the greatest and the highest and best already because he's given us his son. And so what does that mean? We're, 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 we're picking apart what the New Testament teaches that you already have. And it's very interesting that I don't think uh, someone without the Spirit of God, someone without a relationship with Christ, has the ability to understand these things that we have freely from the grace of God. I don't think they're applicable or accessible. I don't think they're something you can understand. There's kind of a bar to entry, and it's called you need, you need the life that God alone gives through his son. That said, you can't say to somebody that doesn't have Christ, well, this is the package of things God wants to do for you. It doesn't really work. We could talk about forgiveness of sins and eternal life and all the things but to fully grasp it, you really need the life. And this is the interesting thing. I've trusted in Christ. I know Jesus is my Savior. So now I need to think about what it means that Jesus is my Savior. And we're going to grow, as the New Testament says, with respect to our salvation. We're going to grow up into all things, into him who's the head of all things. And that's, that's the, the call to this study of the riches of grace, what has God already done for me? And we've looked at many things, the things that are associated in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul with the blood of Christ, that phrase, and the things that God has done in redemption and propitiation and redemption, and um, I'm sorry, reconciliation and the atonement. These are the products, the consequences of the blood of Christ, the way the New Testament talks about it. So what we're saying is we're talking about our salvation, and it's like a diamond with many facets, and we're looking at all these different facets and saying it's one thing, but boy, is it many things. And that is a beautiful diamond. We're talking about the fact today, again, that you have the Holy Spirit. And we're saying that this week with anticipation of, uh, of our Thanksgiving celebration, the American holiday, the American original, Thanksgiving, you know, turkey and football. <laughs> we have great cause to live a life of thanksgiving and every day is Christmas and we really need to live constantly in light of the resurrection of Christ because our destiny is resurrection with him. Did we just lose depth? 
You know, I, I worked for 15 years here without that. Uh, you, have <laughs> you have the Spirit of God. And if anybody has tendencies to seizures. Uh, anyway. This is something that's true whether you know it or not. And the Word of God tells you these things so that you can rejoice. And so we're kind of having a feast on these statements in the New Testament about what we already have. And the obvious application I've always said with this is gratitude. We have so much to be grateful for. I want to talk about gratitude as a, a problem solver. As you go through the hard things in life, one of the greatest applications of God's word to your circumstance is thanksgiving. And it's counterintuitive. When I'm suffering and I'm hurting and I'm in the moment and it's acute and I'm really compromised, driven by my feelings of bewilderment, abandonment, self-pity, whatever the feelings are that, that grab hold of us and take us in a direction away from our creator, because we're suffering and we're hurting and, and you have these reactions, often very sinful reactions, it's counterintuitive for us to think about the fact that I have the spirit of God in me, that Jesus Christ paid for my sins on the cross, that he loved me, as Paul says in Galatians 2, and he gave himself for me, that the father so loved me that he gave his only begotten son so that I could have everlasting life. I who believed in him would have everlasting life. The, the, the obvious feeling of sadness and hardship kind of militates against the obvious response of gratitude to what God has said. But it turns out that that's what I need to do. I need to grab hold of the truth of God's word regarding his plan for me and give him thanks for it. And I want to say that that doesn't make your problem go away. It changes you and how you carry the load. You can read about the problem solving of thanksgiving in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, as I've told you before, is the emergency uh, relief valve, the emergency parachute, when you have to grab a hold of something to get your bearings back in the moment, in the throes of despair. It'll be gratitude to God for who he is. And this is fodder. What we're doing is feeding that, that gratitude in this study. You should and I should come away loving God more because of what we've studied. We should come away more marveling at what the cross means. And we should redouble our intention to stay in the shadow of the Almighty under that cross that what Jesus has done for us has accomplished all these things. The moment you first believe in Jesus Christ, this side of about midway through the book of Acts wasn't true and for a little while during this age, but pretty soon, if you believed in Christ, then you had the Spirit. And it wasn't done by the apostles laying hands anymore. It was the very moment of belief in the message of Christ's death and resurrection for your sins, as we read in Acts chapter 10. The moment you first believe in Christ, you are forevermore regenerated regenerated or brought into new life by the Spirit of God. You are indwelled by God the Holy Spirit, which is also described as an anointing from God. You are baptized, and that means always identification, and it is not water that we're talking about in this case. I didn't say the moment you trust in Christ, you're water baptized. I said the moment you trust in Christ, you are baptized by means of the Holy Spirit, and the one doing that baptizing is Jesus Christ himself, as prophesied by the, uh, John the Baptist, baptized into union with Christ. You are sealed unto the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit, and you are gifted by him. And these are the works of the Spirit, at least some of them, 
of the works of the Spirit in the life of the believer the moment you trust in Christ. These are truths that we'll spend our entire lives growing into. These realities of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf are ours right now. And if you didn't know that, maybe you're having trouble and you still don't know that. But God's word says this, and I want to explore this idea of being sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption today. We are recipients of the earnest of our inheritance in Christ, the earnest. Places that say that are here, and we'll go through them. In 2 Corinthians one twenty-two, in the King James, it says, He who hath sealed us also and given the earnest of the Spirit into our hearts. Do you know what it means that you have an earnest of the Spirit in your heart? Has that ever occurred to you? I have an earnest. This is one of those places when we're doing our Bible read-through, you know, read through the Bible in a year. I'm on my 15th lap, you know, through the Bible. Um, when we, when we see this, we kind of say, huh, he's given, he's sealed us and given the earnest of the spirit into our hearts. Don't worry. I'll go to that passage and look at it. In second Corinthians, same epistle five, five, and I put them in historical order because Paul wrote Corinthians before Ephesians. Now he hath wrought us that he that wrought us for the selfsame thing is God who also hath given unto us the earnest of the spirit. Some of you said he's speaking in tongues now. He put the King James up there. I, I, it's a good English translation. I just use it sometimes. He hath given unto us the earnest of the spirit. He used it twice in First Corinthians, Second Corinthians one twenty two and five five, Ephesians one thirteen. In whom you also trusted. After that ye heard the word of the truth the gospel of your salvation, whom also after ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. That's 13 and then 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance. He keeps using this word earnest, not the name earnest, the importance of being earnest. Earnest, the, the down payment, the beginning installment of something bigger. And in Ephesians 4.30, and grieve, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. This concept of sealing apparently is very tightly related in terms of the work of the Spirit and the, and the new believer. It's apparently uh, very tightly related to the earnest of the inheritance. And um, you could say they're two sides of the same coin, and we are looking at one facet of the diamond that is our salvation. What is the sealing of the Holy Spirit? In 2 Corinthians one twenty-two, in 2 Corinthians one twenty-two, it says, or one twenty, if you want to turn there, it says, for as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. In this context, the Apostle Paul is early in his letter justifying himself, as it were. He's saying, I couldn't come, but I wanted to. I could not be with you, but I wanted to be with you. Um, God is my witness that I couldn't be with you as I had desired, and God had other plans, but God's word is sufficient and God's yes is yes and his no is no. He's using the occasion in his letter to, to explain to the Corinthians, on the one hand, he wanted to come, he said he would, he couldn't, and yet God is faithful and his yes is always yes. And so as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. In other words, God will do what he said. He makes a promise, it's not a well maybe, it's a yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen, God's promise is a yes. He said he'd do it, so he says yes. 
our response to him is, I believe it. It's amen. So he says yes, and I believe it. And that's the way we relate to God's promises. And he's drawing a distinction between himself. I expect to come to you in the winter well, I could, or in the, in the spring or whatever. I couldn't. The distinction is that humans are yes, maybe yes, maybe no. We, our, our decisions are contingent. God's promises are solid on the basis of who he is. That's the context for what he's saying. So we say amen to the glory of God through us. God brings his glory through us as we trust him in his promises. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us, we, us versus you. He's talking me and my associates, you, the Corinthians, hearing this. He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. I don't have any right to claim any apostolic authority or any, any right to build in your life of myself. I haven't earned it by being an excellent speaker. We learned that in 1 Corinthians. I didn't earn the right. God gave me this right. It's God's grace and truly with Paul, it's his mercy. And God anointed us. It's, it's a God work in our lives. So in other words, the Corinthians have a problem of arrogance and not listening to the appointed, anointed uh, apostle of Jesus Christ because they're arrogantly trying to compare him. And you know, we learn in first Corinthians, they're comparing him to, um, to the other people that they've listened to like Apollos. And Paul is saying, that's not what we're doing. We're not merit based here. We're on the basis of grace and God has established me and, and authorized me. And he also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. See, this is connected in other words, in the context, the apostleship and the ministry of the apostleship is connected to our salvation. How? Apostleship's a gift. Every believer receives one in Ephesians 4. That's one example. How is apostleship connected? If God the Son hadn't sent out the apostles, then the gospel wouldn't have gone forward and we wouldn't have salvation. And there is a chain of hands from you back to Jesus Christ sending out the apostles. And when I say hands, I don't mean laying on of hands necessarily. I mean, there is a chain of custody. There's a spiritual genealogy where who told you of Christ? Whoever it was, someone prior to that person told them of Christ and they became a believer. And someone prior to that person told them of Christ. And the chain that leads to you trusting in Christ is a human chain God has used through the ages. We are definitely apostolic. We are definitely a product of the supernatural work of Jesus Christ through the apostles in the earth, beginning in 33 AD, in the power of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And so we, the apostles, he's saying, are sealed, and we were given, we've been given the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And in that sense, Paul is the same as the Corinthians. Now, what is the Spirit in your heart? That is the third person of the Trinity, resident in the immaterial core of your being. Now, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 want to say that their uh, hearts and spirit, the immaterial me is for God, but the body is for the temple of Aphrodite. They want to say that the, the food is for the stomach and the stomach is food. My body wants to serve its, its, its sexual lusts. A blessing of God for marriage turned into a sin in every case besides marriage. My, my body wants to fulfill its sexual lust, but my spirit wants to worship God. That is the Corinthian error, and Paul teaches the doctrine of the temple of the Holy Spirit being your physical body in 1 Corinthians 6. You can't do the Platonic thing, that it doesn't matter what happens to the physical as long as my spirit is with God. But there is the difference between your body and your spirit. We're just not Platonic about it. There is the difference. And the whole of you is for God. Well, here he says that the Holy Spirit is in our heart. And he's not, when he uses the word cardia or heart, pardon me, 
He's not talking about the physical pump. He's not talking about the cardiovascular system of your body. He's using it as an analogy. He's using it as an illustration. He sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So here's the question, believer. Do you know that the Holy Spirit lives in your heart, the in, in the immaterial core of your being? Do you know this is your privilege? This is because of the work of Christ and his eternal plan, God's eternal plan that the Son is executing. And do you know that the Holy Spirit is the beginning of something more? It's hard to imagine that, but the pledge means that there's more coming. The word in Greek is arbon, and it means like the down payment or the earnest money to say, okay, I'm going to complete the transaction. It's the beginning of a greater, a greater and greater fullness that is God's plan for you that the Bible calls inheritance. In 2 Corinthians 5, 4 through 8, if you want to slip on across to 2 Corinthians 5, we have a similar statement of the sealing and the earnest. This is the passage that Paul is teaching about the temporal nature of this body and how this life is not about our body. It's about the eternal purposes of God. And our body is a decaying, dying tent. There are various interpretations of 2 Corinthians 5. Some have taken that the body means the church, and so it doesn't mean your physical body. But the problem with that is that the church is not a tent that's rotting away and dying. The body of Christ is being renewed all the time. The, The passage he's talking about is actually the dealing with the problem of our physical death. 2 Corinthians 5 1. We know that if, excuse me, if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. We have a building, we have a building from God, a house uh, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. What he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5 is the promise of the resurrection body. The fact of Christ's death for your sins, securing your salvation, and the resurrection, securing the eternal life that is ours through the resurrection, that is yours, and this body is going to die, but it will also be resurrected. And that's why he calls it a tent, because it's temporary. We want to say that the physical things in this life are permanent. And that's why we don't want to go to funerals, because we find out that they're not permanent. This body's not final, and what happens in this body is of less importance than the heart of man in which resides the Holy Spirit. It's so important to get this. I'm not saying your body's unimportant. I'm saying compared to the resurrection, what's happening with our bodies with its decay and its death is unimportant. Compared to the resurrection, it's in comparison. In verse 2, he says, For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, uh, having put it on, will not be found naked. For while, indeed, while we're in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is immortal will be swallowed up by life. I I don't know how you conclude other than he's talking about the hardship of life, which is the decay of this body. You know, Caleb, General Caleb under Joshua, conquered Judah at an, as an 80-year-old. He, he, he wore in his greatest battles, his most difficult military uh, conquests at the end of his life. I call what we're talking about here in 2 Corinthians 5, Caleb Christianity. The toughest stuff comes at the end. Elderly uh, saints know what it is for their children to die of cancer in their middle ages when they're older. The worst thing that ever happens to human beings is that we lose a child. I contend, based on Genesis 20. And the fact of the cross and that the son had to die on the cross for, for our sins and the father sacrificed him. I think the worst thing human beings encounter is the death of a child. And some of you have had that and I'm not, I'm not unaware. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of this fact as I say it. It's the worst. 
As we get older, these kinds of horrible disasters become more frequent. Our body stops working and we get frustrated because my mind is sharp, but my body can't do it. My joints won't take the, the force necessary to do the things that my mind wants to do. And that is its own kind of broken down prison. And it, it approaches paralysis as we go. You go long enough and there you'll be paralyzed. Your body will stop functioning. You will have to have other humans younger and now stronger than you help you to the bathroom. And then you die. It's Caleb Christianity. What we're called to are the toughest fights at the end. And what I see, I see two different paths on this, by the way, in, in terms of the end. I see Christians that know where they're going and they keep their eyes on that and they're not looking at the brokenness. They're looking at the promise of the resurrection and their hearts are hurting, but they're also buoyed up because they're looking at what's coming. And then I know the other side where we have a tendency to feel sorry for ourselves and we look at our circumstance and our hardship and we get bitter. And I've seen it. And bitter and afraid as you're dying is the opposite of God's design for you. And this is part of what 2 Corinthians 5 is written to, to show us. We're all facing it. We all, we all make headlines when someone dies young. But the, but the other side of that is everybody's going to die. Unless, unless, unless we're in that one generation. But let's go ahead and t- every Christian who has reached a, a sufficient age in this age has died. And so verse 4, indeed, while we're in this tent, we groan being burdened because we don't want to be unclothed but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up with life. Ah, that sounds good. Okay, that's something to look forward to. That's what the Bible does, is it buoys our hopes. We have a Christian optimism. Not in man. We have a legitimate Christian cynicism about humans and their prospects and all their psychological and sociological solutions for the problem that they won't acknowledge, which is a sinful turning from God. But we who are looking at the light, who are of the light, we know that this body's dying, but the resurrection's coming. And so we have great optimism. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose of the resurrection body is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. What is the Holy Spirit promising? We have him now in this dying body. What is it promising? The presence of the Spirit of God in part is promising our resurrection. In part, it's promising what comes after the resurrection, which is the coming kingdom, the ruling with Christ in a physical resurrection body, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, as demonstrated by Jesus in his resurrection. We'll be like him. We'll see him as he is, John says, we'll be like him. Our resurrection will be like the resurrection of Christ. And this is an interesting thought. Maybe you haven't thought of this. Maybe you have. If you've been with me, you've heard me say it many times. Jesus can show in his resurrection body. He can show his scars. He can show nail prints. He can show the spear marks. It's not a new body that's different. The empty tomb means it's the same body. I take care of the body. I know it's going to die and eventually become dust, but it's going to also be resurrected. It'll be you in this body you're in made new. And I know there's a problem with the physics and the biology of that, but God knows he's got that. He's holding all that together by the word of his power. And if you read Second Peter 3, he made everything out of water. My physics knowledge is now beyond. We're playing with marbles and God is building particle colliders. We don't really understand. He prepared for us us for this very thing, a purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, always being of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. See, this can't just be the body of Christ, the church. 
Because there's coming a time when the body of Christ will forevermore be with the, the Lord. And First Thess 4.18, so will we ever be with the Lord. So it has to be what, what it seems to be. It's talking about your physical body. We're always of good courage. Okay, let me ask you a Bible study question. If we ask who, what, when, where, why questions of verse 6, we'll ask the when question. When should we be of good courage? Always, right? Because it says we're always of good courage. Why? Because the promise of the Spirit that we will have a resurrection body is always true, and it's always within us that we have the Spirit of God. Being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in this physical body, we are absent from the physical presence of the Lord, who's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. For we walk by faith, not by sight. That's why you're of good courage. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. What you have to do if you run down the question, what does the Bible teach about the sealing ministry of the Spirit in this passage, is that we are expecting a resurrection. So we're marked. Seal always means a mark. There's a couple of questions. Does seal mean, like we think of sealing like, um, like laminated or hermetically sealed or something. A pressure cooker has a seal. Your Vapo seal uh, cook, cook, cookware, right? That that's the seal. It's not what it means. The seal is the mark. It's the stamp that someone marks you with to say this is, this is um, mine. This is what they, the same word, uh, sfragizo, to seal, is the word that is used in... Um, in the Gospels, Matthew 27, for when they put a seal on the tomb. They didn't stop the tomb. It wasn't the seal that they placed on the tomb that made it airtight or something. It's that it was marked probably on the seam so that you couldn't open. If it was open, the seal would be broken. But it's just a mark that says, this is mine, and by that decree, don't open this. It's the decree, don't open this. It's the decree, this belongs to me. The seals in the book of Revelation on the, the, the seven-sealed uh, scroll, uh, they're, they're, the scroll you see would be wound up, and then there would be seals, seven of them down, like wax seals. And that would indicate that um, the one with the right to open those seals that had the authority could break the seals. Otherwise, no one has that right. And that's the idea, is there's an authority implied. There's a mark from the person who has that authority. There is... Therefore, the symbol or the signification he means by the seal. And apparently that signification is the fullness of our inheritance in Christ, which includes our resurrection body. When you read about the seal, remember the resurrection. So how should we respond to these things? What should be my response to the fact that I've been promised a resurrection body? I've been given eternal life. I don't have a resurrection body now, but I've been given the Holy Spirit, and he's the earnest. He's the beginning installment, if you will. Well, you should take a clue from the American original, and we should be grateful. As I started, the application of the study is gratitude. And I want to remind you of what we as a, as a country originally said about what we're doing on Thursday. It is Thanksgiving. It's not primarily a Thanksgiving message, but it is the obvious application for the fact that the Spirit of God lives in each of our hearts. In 1789, the President of the United States established the basis for what I consider to be the American holiday, not where we're just celebrating the fact that we broke from England. I love the 4th of July, but where we're celebrating the fact that God gave us a country that God preserved us alive in the tradition of the pilgrims. Remember the 1620 project. 
So this is Washington's Thanksgiving proclamation of 1789. And he said, whereas, which means since, since everybody knows this, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. Do all nations do that? No. In Psalm 2, nobody does that. Does the United States do that today? No, we don't do that. But the first president thought it was the duty of all nations to do that. To obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and to humbly implore his protection and favor, since that's true. But let me break down some, some, some 18th century high, high writing. Since that's all true. And since both houses, whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me, quote, to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Since all that's true, and since the Congress has asked for this to be uh, commemorated by the executive branch, I'm going to go ahead and do what they ask. Boy, that's a lot. That's a mouthful what the Congress asked. To remind the people, to recommend to the people a day of public thanksgiving and prayer. Public thanksgiving and prayer. See, Washington hadn't gotten the letter to the Danbury Baptists about the separation of church and state, the wall of separation. It's public thanksgiving prayer because this is the duty of all nations. This is as close as we're going to get, I think, this side of the actual coming kingdom and rule of Jesus Christ to this kind of national response. I mean, you can't make the people believe and you can't make them worship. You can't legislate that. But God will. God does. And that's what the, the kingdom will be like. It's coming. But it's a beautiful thought as we started our country. What is Thanksgiving as a holiday today? Thanksgiving is a stress is a cause for great repentance. After it's all over, you have to come to God and confess your many sins of, of anger, of things you said to cousin so-and-so about uncle so-and-so that you shouldn't have said. It's a, it's a mess, right? Don't show your hands, but everybody here is stressed about something with Thanksgiving. Either you've got too much to do or you have to deal with so-and-so and you don't want to. Or so-and-so is coming and you want them to approve, but they don't. Or something. There's a stress that's coming for you because of this nightmare of, um, of our national holiday. And the guys don't know of any of this. Guys, or guys, right? We're like, whatever. It's football. We're just going to watch football. I mean, if we're smart, we're going to play football in the yard in the cold. And then we'll go inside and watch football. We may or may not have turkey, you know, and stuff ourselves. But, but you know, it's just like whatever. Just kind of relax, enjoy the time. It's a four-day weekend. And I, I don't really worry much about what day of the year it is because of the resurrection. It's true every day. And we're supposed to rest in God's grace every day. But I love the thought here that we had for this American original. By affording them the opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness, they're blaming God for the form of government that we have and that is now being executed between Congress and the president. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th of November, next to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be. That is a statement of theism, and it isn't necessarily Christian, but it's definitely a theistic acknowledgement of the one creator. That we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection 
of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation. So for the colonial era, and what we talked about, the 1620 Project, that's where this all started historically. For the signal of manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence, which were experienced in the course and conclusion of the late war. So we're at 1789. We're still, we still have wounded veterans. We still have all the issues that he dealt with as the president about the pensions and everything. We're a country at peace, having been recently in war. For the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we've been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one now lately instituted. So we're thanking God for making us a nation for the Constitution. The fourth verse of the national anthem says this, that God made us a nation. And it's a prayer, it's a thanksgiving to God the way it's stated. That's why I call this the American holiday. For the civil and religious liberty with which we were blessed and the means we, we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge and in general for all the great and various favors which he hath been pleased to confer upon us and also that we may unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of the nations and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions. There was never in the American spirit by the framers, by the politicians that are saying what we want to hear and that's what they always do. I'm very cynical about George Washington. I'm cynical about humans. But let's say he's just saying what the populace wanted to hear because he's, he's a, 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 a good leader. He knows, in other words, what his audience, he knows his audience. And that's really the issue, not, the, not what Washington believed, but what the people believe that he's writing to. Think about an audience that can receive this as a nation, that everyone in Congress would say, bravo, that's, that's our president. All right. Imagine, imagine the way the worldview of the people would have to be to receive such a message. We were never self-righteous as a people in our founding. We never said we got everything right. We asked God for forgiveness for our national transgressions because we at least had enough of a biblical worldview to know that's how humans have to function in their sinfulness in the face of a righteous, perfect creator. Right? And this is the interesting self-righteous moment of our time where people want to say, well, those white people back then were selfish and, and sinful and broken, unlike us. See, we've degenerated from that self-awareness of our sinfulness. We can see, like a little, little arrogant child, we can see the sins of our brother. Jesus said, you, you know, you're squinting at the, the, the little speck in your brother's eye and you're swinging a telephone pole around out of your own eye. You've got this great plank in your own eye. It, that's how self-righteousness works. He ends with, we need to confess our sins as a nation to enable us all, whether in public or private stations, to perform our several relative duties properly and punctually. I want public office to be done right. So I'm asking God to make me, help me do it right in the public office, just like Solomon asked when he was made king. To render our national, God render our national government a blessing to all the people by constantly being a government of wise, just, and constitutional laws, discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed. So the request phase, forgive us our sins and make us a good government. The request to protect and guide all sovereigns and nations, especially such as have shown kindness unto us, so our allies, and to bless them with good government, peace, and concord. So we're praying intercessory prayer for other nations. To promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue. So God promote the knowledge of true religion and virtue and the increase. Uh, he misspelled increase. The increase of science among them and us 
And generally to grant science back, th back then mean, meaning knowledge, not an authoritative body of doctrine that makes sure that nobody can believe in God. That's what science means today. It's an authoritative body of doctrine that you take on faith because the experts told you. And after all, we have observed the redshift in a full solar eclipse, so we know everything there is to know about the stars. All right. Um, <laughs> Generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows to be best. So it ends with thy will be done. I'm not sure that George Washington was a Christian. That's a controversial statement for me to say that. Most Americans that are, you know, red-blooded Americans want me to say he was a Christian, okay? He slept through a lot of sermons as the legends go, and I don't know what the status of his salvation was. I know that he was a man of his era, and he was a product of his culture in Virginia, and that this is how Virginians and, uh, that are publicly devout are supposed to talk to the entire nation. This is how they're supposed to say the outlook of the people supposed to be. I think it's more important to look at what he said in his text, in other words, than the kind of character he had. And we have lots of people in American history that are like that, including Martin Luther King. The, the I Have a Dream speech is a much better document than the life the man lived, it turns out. It just is. And, and the audience he's saying it to is the issue, to me, in a broken world with sinful humans. What, what are we saying? We're saying that the American original of Thanksgiving was a recognition in the time and space in which we lived of God's works nationally. It was a time of prayer, of confession of sin, of thanksgiving for God's many blessings, and a request for the things that we need to do nationally. It was a way to unify the people in the terms of their common, their common belief in the Creator and to seek His face in prayer. That's what it was. Now... Whoa, how the mighty have fallen. Of course, that, that's not our culture now. It's how you and I think. We're throwbacks. We're dinosaurs. We think this way. And, um, and we lament together the loss of the world that was because of the prosperity that inevitably flows from that kind of worldview and practice as a people. And we'd love to see God do a reformation. God do a work again. Let's get another first great awakening. Not the second and thirds, please. Just the first one. Just do that again, right? But we'd love to see God do a work in our people in our time. But before you go, and I, you and I go running off in, in despair, we wear a sandwich board that says repent for the end is near, you know, down by the, by the red light. People say, what? tell me about Preston City. Well, we, we have a traffic light. But no Dairy Queen, but maybe someday. Um, <laughs> comfortable seats. Before we, we start saying the point is that we're despairing because of what we've lost, I want you to see that regardless of the culture you live in, in England, in the days that George Washington wrote this, 17, was that 1789? In England, there were believers in church praising God for their so great salvation. There were people in concentration camps during World War II praising God for their so great salvation. There are people in the, in the oppressed world outside of the freedom that is quickly disappearing here. There are people, as you know, throughout the world that are believers in Christ with freedom because of the work of Christ. I mean, spiritual freedom to worship him and praise him and glorify him and empowered by his spirit to do so, who can thank God for the sealing of the spirit, which promises the resurrection. And yes, we should be a people of gratitude. 
to God. No, we are not today as a people capable of being unified this way. The thought, the worldview is, is gone. And it's the only answer is evangelism. The only answer is sharing Christ with people. And that's always been the only answer. But yes, what a great thing that we said in our origin to thank God for his blessings. And there is no higher blessing than the fact that God has put his Holy Spirit into your heart. I've said it a hundred times. 101, here it comes. Probably the greatest waste of resources in world history is the believer, rank and file believer, with the Holy Spirit in his heart. Because in the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I are capable of putting to death the deeds of the body or mortifying the flesh, as Paul says. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we're capable of pleasing God with our willing acts of obedience because we're trusting in God through his word the Holy Spirit has inspired and illuminated and we're living his word in that faith obedience and the power of the spirit that God provides for God is working in you both to want and to do of his pleasure. What a squandering waste that Christians don't understand that the spirit of God lives in your heart to bring about the character of Christ and the actions of our savior in your life. What a privilege, what a blessing that we can know it. So what do we do? We need to thank God every single day for what he's done, especially in the hardship. And we need to walk by the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we commit the closing of our our service this morning to anyone who may be in the hearing of my voice without Christ, without hope, without eternal life. We want you to know that from eternity past, God had a plan for you. And part of that plan involves you hearing this. That every human being, no matter how intelligent, pleasant, altruistic, enjoyable, or nasty we may be, every human being is in an infinite deficit with God because of our sinfulness. There are three ways the Bible describes sin, and we're in trouble with all three of them. We sinned in Adam, the first who cast us all under this condemnation of sin. We have a sinful nature, and we commit personal sins of our own right, and every human being is guilty of this. And the problem with our sin is that God's perfect righteousness must condemn and judge, and that's what the cross is about. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the message of the gospel. And what you can do about that is not promise to reform. I mean, you can try it, but it won't work because the sins that you don't commit going forward don't address the fallenness in Adam and the sins that you've already committed and your tendency, your nature towards sin. In other words, the human race is in a hopeless condition and nobody has any basis for self-righteousness or boast before God. So what we have is an impossible circumstance that requires a feat of literally superhuman, beyond superhuman, divine strength. God had to intervene, and that's the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins. And what you and I must do with that truth is trust in him. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior, that he died for my sins, and he rose from the dead. And in paying the penalty for our sins, he bought us from the slave market of sin. He redeemed us in his own body. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, you and your household. Our Father, we thank you for eternal life that is yours by your grace to give to us only through Christ. 
Thank you that uh, the mystery of the gospel is something we'll constantly study and review. And thank you that the more we look at it, the richer we become in our own understanding because we're infinitely wealthy already in position. Help us grow into these things. We ask it in Jesus' name. And we all said, Amen. Amen.